Welcome to episode two of The Quantified Body. Our performance and quality of life is largely dependent on a delicate balance of brain biochemistry. This defines our mental health, our mood, our anxiety, our focus and attention, cognitive performance, and ultimately, even our personalities. And today's guest estimates that 80 to 90% of the population have some kind of biochemistry abnormality that affects their brain. This is based on insights from a database of biochemistry he's collected over 35 years and which has over 3 million biochemistry test essays in it. So that's a hell of a lot of data. So while many of us may not be included in the clinical diagnosis of mental disorders, which is about 26% of the population, according to the CDC, most of us can probably improve our mental well-being or cognitive performance by addressing any biochemistry imbalances that we have. Today's guest is Dr. William J. Walsh, founder of the WalshInstitute.org. Over his 35-year career, he has treated 30,000 patients with a wide range of brain-related disorders, successfully treating them by addressing biochemical, methylation, and epigenetic abnormalities. The treatments are all nutrient-based to realign biochemistry and thus drug-free. William is also a frequent lecturer at conferences across the world, including organizations such as the American Psychiatric Association, the US Senate, and the National Institutes of Mental Health. In short, he's got a very, very long and deep CV backed up by those 35 years of experience. So this is a great interview that goes into a lot of depth in biochemistry, the labs, as well as looking at the emerging area of epigenetics and how work there will help us resolve more health issues and optimize our biochemistry. Before we start the interview today, I've got a quick and very important favor to ask you. We've just launched the show on iTunes. It's literally just gone up last night. And the big deal with iTunes is that if we get some ratings and some feedback and some subscriptions pretty early on, like in the first few days, they're going to show us to more people and more people are going to be aware of the show and it's going to be more worthwhile for me. It's going to get the guests who come on the show more exposure. So everything works out and it'll be much better. And all you have to do to help out with that and to give me some feedback, which I'll use to make the show better, whatever it is, whatever your comments are, is go to verquantifiedbody.net forward slash iTunes and it will take you to iTunes. You click subscribe and put your rating. You can also search directly in iTunes for The Quantified Body and you'll find it there. Thank you very much for that, guys. This is really helpful. It will make a big difference to the show and allow me to keep on producing and making these shows better and better. To get the show notes, the transcript of the interview, the download of the interview, and all of the links to everything we talk about in today's show, so all of the labs and the physicians and so on, then go to TheQuantifiedBody.net forward slash episode two. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. William, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, Damien, it's my pleasure. In order to get started, I wanted to just quickly dive into the scope of your work. What is it actually covered in terms of, I know it's all basically centered around mental disorders. Could you give a kind of broad strokes overview of the areas you've looked at and gone into over the last 30 years or 20 years? It's been about 35 years, actually. 
Basically, I started as a scientist working on things like nuclear physics, uh, chemical engineering. I worked for Argonne National Laboratory, Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory, places like that. So I come from a background of hard science. About 35 or 40 years ago, I became a prison volunteer trying to help people leaving prison. And in the course of that, I got very interested in the causes of behavior disorders. And that sort of launched me into studies on brain science. And I guess more than anything else lately, I've been studying with my colleagues and research associates, the microbiology of the brain, especially with respect to originally behavior disorders, and then attention deficit disorder, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and then most recently, Alzheimer's. So I've been focusing on trying to understand what is going on in the brain that's different for these people. Along the way, I did start a clinic in Illinois that at one time I think was the largest complementary medicine clinic in the world. And we eventually saw 30,000 patients. And we evaluated all of them with respect to metal metabolism and methylation and pyrrole disorders and malabsorption. And I accumulated a lot of data and I've always collected the numbers. So I have, I think, the world's biggest chemistry database for a lot of these conditions. Wow, wow, that's pretty impressive. That's really one I want to get you on the show because I was pretty impressed by that number when you brought it up in another interview I heard. And of course, your book is fantastic. When I was researching before this interview, I was looking for the mental disorders, like some of the ones you've been talking about. Some of the estimates are that 26% of Americans age 18 or older actually have one of these disorders. So one in four Americans, which is pretty huge. So it affects a huge slice of society. Have you seen this as like something that's very, very commonplace? So like the cases you've seen, has it been very, very specific cases who they've been clinically diagnosed? Or is it like something a bit more broader that like you've had patients referred from all sorts of areas where perhaps they don't feel like they have a mental disorder as such. It's kind of a big word. And maybe they're just having a few problems at work. They feel a bit depressed or, you know, it's, it's something that they wouldn't really feel is a clinical situation. Well, we, of course, studied primarily people who had major problems like severe clinical depression or schizophrenia. But in order to really evaluate them, you have to know what normal is. So along the way, we had to study very healthy people who didn't have these problems to get an idea of what the chemistries should be and what the brain chemistry should be. Now, these disorders come in mild, moderate, and severe. Maybe it's 26% of the people in the population has a really significant problem. Probably at least 80% or 90% of us have some abnormalities in our brain chemistry and life would be better if we knew what those were and could correct them. That's pretty impressive. So it's really relevant to everyone. And that's what I understood from your book and what I was really amazed about. And especially when you started describing some of the personality symptoms, things that I think we accept as pretty much normal in society. That's right. Because, for example, methylation is something that we have to evaluate in everybody. About 70% of the human population has normal methylation. But about 20% are undermethylated, and that's basically genetic, and we're born that way. And another 10% are overmethylated. These conditions have a lot to do with mental functioning. With our personality and traits, for example, undermethylated people tend to have a strong will. They tend toward high accomplishment in life. They're competitive. They're sort of driven individuals compared to the others, whereas the overmethylated people are friendly, uh, make wonderful neighbors. They might get involved in nursing or in charity work. And the overmethylated people 
one of the tendencies is they tend to be very artistic and better at music. Each of us is somewhat defined a bit genetically from the time we're born, and we have tendencies that are there and sort of makes us who we are and gives us a diversity that we all like. But in extreme cases with severe chemical abnormalities, biochemistry awry, when that happens, you can have a disorder that can really plague a person and cause a lot of misery. And that's what we focused on. When we evaluate a patient, we have to not only get lab results, we also need to know everything we can about this human being because the symptoms and traits give a lot of evidence with respect to what the chemistry is and what neurotransmitters are not functioning properly. Can you explain a little bit more about what methylation is? And if it's a problem, you're saying like some people are under-methylated and over-methylated, but the way you describe their personality types, and everyone knows these kind of people. So is it okay in some situations when it gets more advanced, more away from a balance, that it becomes a problem? Or is it a slight issue? Is it going to present some problems, perhaps in concentration, in performance, at work, or whatever it is? People who are under-methylated, and I'm one of them, and I suspect you probably are too, these are people who are self-motivated. They tend toward obsessive-compulsive tendencies. And if they can channel that into a career or into a line of study, it can be a very good thing. But of course, it can also go in the wrong direction. These are the same people who are more prone to be hooked on things, like if they ever start to take illegal drugs, for example. For females, it can involve, or anybody, it can involve shopping disorders or gambling disorders. Basically, it's a matter of extremes. The environment has quite a bit to do with it. Methyl is the simplest organic chemical. It's carbon with three or four hydrogens. It's a very dominant factor in human functioning. That domination starts in the womb during the first three or four weeks of that little tiny baby developing in the womb. Your DNA in every cell in your body, at that time, methyl reacts with parts of your DNA. And that acts like a switch that turns on some chemicals and turns off others. In other words, it's a switch that can turn on a gene or turn off a gene. We have 23,000 genes, and every gene's got only one job, and that's to make a protein. That's what every gene does. It makes one specific protein or enzyme. Since we have the same DNA in every part of our body, in order for a person to be healthy and normal, every part of your body, every tissue, your kidney, your lungs, your liver, uh, you need different chemicals in every one of these areas. And that's how this is all done. It's done with methylation. If people are over-methylated or under-methylated, then this changes things. And that's why we get these different traits and symptoms. Sometimes they're mild and just sort of defines people. Like some people are talkative. Others are quiet. That's probably an intrinsic thing related to methylation. In many cases, there are certain disorders that are associated with methylation. And for example, about... 65% of all people with schizophrenia have a methylation disorder. And it's about 60% of all people who have clinical depression have a methylation disorder. And if we can identify what their methylation status is, we can provide them with nutrient therapy, drug-free therapy that can usually correct that and avoid the need for a drug medication. You said a lot of things that are very interesting and that I actually didn't see in your book. Like you've covered addictions for undermethylators. Have you seen any situations, so these are some kind of like new applications of your work that I wasn't aware of. Have you seen any application for drug abuse or areas like that for the kinds of treatments you're talking about? 
over our history of doing clinical work with 30,000 people, one thing that we never were very good at was trying to help people who might have cocaine addiction or heroin addiction or alcoholism. And we actually would not invite those people to come to our clinic because we thought we, we were not likely to help them. But in the last 10 years, there's been some wonderful revealing research on addictions, and it all has to do with the NMDA receptor in the brain, NMDA receptor. And that seems to have everything to do with what they call memory extinction. When something goes wrong with that receptor, which is a glutamate receptor, that seems to have everything to do with addictions. And there are now nutrient natural therapies that seem to be working better than drugs in the research they're doing. I think that's a very positive thing. And we started using these therapies. It's still early. We're not quite sure yet. We haven't done outcome studies, but I think that for the first time in my life, natural treatments for alcoholism and drug addiction are now promising. When you're talking about these changes in personality and behaviors and so on, there is an epigenetic aspect to that. When we're talking about methylation, that affects the epigenetics. Could you explain a little bit about that? And is it permanent or are these treatments actually changing the epigenetic homeostasis of the body when you're fixing and you're treating people? Well, what happens, as I started to say, during early development in the womb, and the nine months of gestation, these methyl marks are put on and attached to certain areas of certain genes and basically switch these genes on or off. They used to believe up until about 10 years ago that these methyl marks, they call them bookmarks or marks, and they thought these methyl marks were in there like concrete. You could not remove them or change them. Well, now we know that's not completely true. And in fact, we now know that environmental insults can alter these marks and cause disorders. We now know that most cancers are epigenetic and result from things that happen after you're born, maybe when you're an adult even. Cancer results from overwhelming environmental insults, usually involving this thing called oxidative stress and free radical assaults on the body that can actually alter these methyl marks and in cancer, they've now worked it out that they understand which genes are being affected. And we now know that most cancer research now is aimed at identifying the misbehaving genes. And in cancer, so far, almost every one of them has been marks that have turned off a cancer protection gene. They know that's absolutely true for bladder cancer and prostate cancer and lung cancer. Another example is skin cancer. If a person is in the sun too much or goes to a tanning bed too often and has too much of an environmental insult to their skin, eventually you can overwhelm your natural protectors and that can alter these methyl marks on parts of your DNA. And that is what the onset of cancer usually is. From that time on, you have this cancer tendency that you have to deal with the rest of your life. That's all pretty well established. We also know that most heart disease is epigenetic in nature. In other words, you might have a person with a predisposition for these problems, but it's triggered by environmental insults, which can be chemical, they can be emotional stresses, they can be physical injuries, things that can cause enough environmental stress and insult to change your gene expression. And the way it changes is by changing these methylation marks. Another thing that's happened is for the first time, because of epigenetics, nutritional practitioners and people who try to do natural therapies 
something it has really given us a whole new ability because in the past we've studied diet and the nutrients that go into the body and for the last 20 years we have a lot of knowledge about how we can give nutrient therapies to alter these levels the one thing we've not been able to do is to address the enzymes the important chemicals in our body that are genetically expressed but now with this whole field of epigenetics we're now able to do that. For example, a lot of depressives, people with clinical depression, have low serotonin activity. They don't have enough neurotransmission at serotonin receptors. We now know that reuptake is the major mechanism that controls that. And because of the field of epigenetics, we now understand that methionine or SAMI, which are nutrients available at least in the US and every drugstore and health food store, we know that they are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. In other words, they do the same thing as antidepressants, except that they do it in a different mechanism. We know that the impact of folates and niacin and a number of nutrients have a really powerful effect on brain function. We now, with our nutrient therapies and biochemical therapies, we now have the ability to be far more effective than we could five years ago. Certainly. So all of these things you're talking about are influencing methylation and as a kind of downstream to that, that's impacting biochemical balances in the body and neurotransmitters. Is that correct? That's correct. Our focus has been on the brain, but this also has a lot to do with other disorders that have to do with the rest of the body. We've just been discussing methylation, but there's other imbalances that are also very important, like metabolism disorders. We know that in specifically copper and zinc, Two trace metals in the body are extremely important in brain function, and we know which neurotransmitters they impact. If a person has a metal metabolism disorder, for example, zinc deficiency or a copper overload, we have now developed treatments that can just normalize that and help a lot of people. So it's not just methylation. It's just that methylation is sort of a new understanding. One of the complications is that if you're undermethylated, the best way to improve your methylation is to use folates, either folic acid, folinic acid, or methylfolate, different forms of folates. The problem is that we now know epigenetically, because of the epigenetic science, that folates have an extremely powerful effect on brain function. So if you've got an undermethylated, depressed person, you can't give them folates or else they'll get worse. Even though the folates will improve methylation, but the patient will get worse and they'll get worse because the impact of the folates on neurotransmitter reuptake is in the opposite direction. And it overwhelms the benefits of improving methylation. It's very complicated. If you study it, it gets really clear and gives us a roadmap for helping people that's beyond anything we could do in the past. I know it's incredibly complicated. I mean, just reading for your book, uh, you can kind of understand that. One of the interesting things, it's all basically biochemical the way you look at this it's about the biochemicals being used in our body and making sure they're in balance is that kind of the whole basis for it well that's a lot of it for things like depression and anxiety and behavior disorders that's pretty much what's important but there are other disorders like autism that are uh, actually are developmental disorders and in that case the brain develops differently and you have what they call connectivity problems where different parts of the brain are slightly off spatially or you might even say geographically and they they don't connect like they should it depends on the disorder but in most mental disorders 
it is the chemistry that tends to dominate, unless, of course, a person has had a head injury or a stroke or something like that. I'd say 95% of the cases, it's biochemistry. Oh, great. Where it's biochemistry, that's addressable. I guess the other 5%, it's not really addressable because there's some permanent injury and it's basically a structural injury rather than some biochemicals that are out of balance. Yeah, we've learned after doing thousands of patients, we've learned there are some people we can't help and we tried hard to identify who they are so we wouldn't have them come and waste their time. A big surprise for me was that in the areas of depression and behavior disorders and ADD and even schizophrenia, that about 95% of them seem to have those conditions because of their abnormal biochemistry. And by correcting and normalizing these chemicals, these brain chemicals, we were able to help most of them based on outcome studies. We would often study maybe a thousand patients from the last couple of years for depression or for autism or whatever, and to find out what happened. Did they improve? To what degree did they improve? Are they still taking the treatment? Is life better? We would find out how many people were really benefited from this and how many of them failed to improve. And then, of course, we would study the non-responders and eventually get our percentages better and better. Your book talks about how you've broken down areas like depression into sub-segments because you've got more detail and you can see different biochemical characteristics of different subsets with slightly different problems. You know, that's really important. My colleague, Dr. Robert DeVito, who's a noted psychiatrist, we decided that one of the most important things we needed to make sure the world understood was about depression. So we gave a paper at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association. That's the, the big meeting once a year. We had 17,000 psychiatrists from all over the world. And we wanted them to know two major things. Number one, depression is not a single condition. Mainstream medicine throughout the world believes that if a person has clinical depression, that basically their problem is low serotonin activity. Nearly every patient who comes to a psychiatrist or any doctor with depression is probably going to be given an SSRI antidepressant like Paxil or Prozac or Serzone or Zoloft. The list goes on and on. But what we found, we have, I think, the world's biggest chemistry database for depression. And what we found quite clearly is that depression is a word used for at least five completely different conditions. About nearly half of them have something else wrong, and they're not going to get better. Antidepressants are not going to help the rest of them. For example, one of these involves a condition that females have that involves elevated copper levels, which has to do with hormone abnormalities. And these people have severe anxiety and depression and antidepressants don't help them. The drugs don't help them. Within about 60 to 90 days, we can usually completely correct that condition. And most of them tell us that the depression is gone and they can throw away their medications. We wanted the psychiatrists of the world to know that. So we gave this presentation and I think it went over really well. The psychiatrists were extremely interested. The second thing we wanted them to know is that they can do inexpensive blood tests that only cost about three or $400 and that can guide their treatment. They can identify which biotype of depression a person has, and they can find out who to give which medication to. But even more importantly, we also talked about how they can help these people with nutrient therapies and not necessarily have to use a drug. I think that's really important. 14% of all Americans have been diagnosed with clinical depression. That's a lot of people. And so many of them are being treated improperly by just throwing antidepressants at them. Whereas there's another group where antidepressants are very helpful. 
it's very important to find out who is who. And there's one group of depressives that actually gets worse on SSRI antidepressants. There's a lot of evidence now that that's responsible for the school shootings in America, where children, teenagers usually get a gun, go into the school and kill people. We've studied the last 50 cases of school shootings. What we find is that these are different from other behavior disordered people. I've studied 10,000 violent children and adults, and usually they show their violence by the time they're three or four or five years old. The school shooters are different. They're usually well-behaved, pretty good students. They develop anxiety and depression, and they get put on an antidepressant. They already have elevated serotonin activity. They get dramatically worse. And then disaster happens. And so I recommended during our talk at the APA to all the psychiatrists that before they give an antidepressant to a teenage boy or really anyone, they really should do some blood tests to find out if they're going to be able to tolerate it. Right. How many types of depression have you defined? There are five major types, five major types that encompass 95% of all depressives. But there are other things that can cause depression. For example, a person can be hypothyroid. Low thyroid can cause depression, and that's separate. There's a number of what I call splinter types. Fortunately, 90 to 95% of people with depression have as their major problem one of these five types of depression. We're now able clinically with lab testing and with a careful medical history we're able to accurately diagnose what type they have, and they require a completely different treatment approach, each one of them. So as I understand it, you have this database which basically provides you fingerprints in terms of the biochemistry of each of these different segments now because of all the data you've collected. What are the list of labs that you found most useful for creating these kind of fingerprints, like the blueprints of what is what and what fits into where? Well, I think this is really the good news. There are really more than 300 nutrient factors that are important in the body. However, what we've learned is that with respect to brain function, the function of the brain and things that might go wrong, there's only about six or eight nutrient factors that have a really dominant effect. And if we focus on those six or eight factors, we're able to help nearly everyone. And the beauty of that is we don't have to do lab work for 300 different nutrients. And we don't have to give treatments to try to normalize 300 or dozens and dozens of things. If we can normalize these six or eight dominant nutrient factors, we can help most people. For example, we know we have to know a person's serum copper level. And we want to know their ceruloplasmin level. And this has to do with how much free radical copper they have. We need to know their plasma zinc level. And about maybe... 20% of people that we work with with mental problems have abnormalities that can be corrected that will help them. We have to find out methylation. Now, there's been a lot of people lately that have been trying to use genetic testing, looking for SNPs and things like MTHFR enzymes that are weakened. And you know, with genetic testing, you can identify enzymes in the methylation cycle, for example, that are weakened. We know that that's not a very good way to try to identify a person's methylation status. Could you explain why that is? Well, the reason is that people are all looking at the methylation cycle, also known as the one carbon cycle. And that's the cycle in the body that basically produces this chemical called SAMI, which is the methyl donor, S-adenosylmethionine. And it's a relatively unstable molecule that goes throughout the body and it donates, provides the methyl for all these important reactions. 
And people are focusing on things that can go wrong in that cycle and can cause undermethylation, one of which is the well-known MTHFR enzyme, which is really the rate-limiting part of that cycle. And now genetically, you can identify weaknesses in that that can cause undermethylation. Well, what people are forgetting is that a lot of people are also overmethylated. So what can cause overmethylation? Well, overmethylation has to do with the utilization of the SAMI. There's about 80 or 90 really important reactions have a lot to do with DNA and have to do with cell division and have to do with all kinds of important processes. But more than half of all your methyl goes to one reaction, and that's to make creatine. Maybe as high as 70% of all your methyl goes to make creatine. Well, there are enzymes with SNPs involved with the utilization of methyl. And if those are weakened, then you can be producing all of the SAMI with a one-carbon cycle, and you've got SNPs that are tending toward overmethylation. So it's a tug of war genetically between those polymorphisms or the called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that tend to weaken. And then you've got a, a group of them that tend to cause overmethylation. It's impossible with genetic testing to tell what the net effect is. And clinically, what we really want to know is, is a person overmethylated or undermethylated? What's the sum total result of all these polymorphisms? And you can actually have a person with the MTHFR 677T, which is the most damaging undermethylation source. Some of these people are actually overmethylated because of the other SNPs that tend toward methylation. So what you're saying is that the system is too complex. There's too many genes working together. And thus, you can't predict what the outcome is going to be by looking at the genes. The SNPs are qualitative. They're not quantitative. They don't give you percentages. So even if you knew all of the SNPs, those that would tend to increase or reduce methylation, you still wouldn't be able to know. But fortunately, there are some lab tests that can tell you or give you strong evidence of whether a person is over or under methylated. Which labs are those? The labs that we've been using primarily have been whole blood histamine. The reason is that histamine and methyl are inverse. Everybody has a lot of histamine in every cell in their body, and it's metabolized or it's controlled or regulated or destroyed by methylation as the main process. The second lab that seems even better than whole blood histamine, there are now labs that will measure both SAMI and SAH. SAH is adenosyl homocysteine, and that's what SAMI becomes when the methyl leaves. And that ratio is the gold standard for measuring methylation in the body. And both of these are dramatically better than any information you can get from genetic testing. So is that plasma, SAM, and SOAR? With respect to methylation. Right, because I've seen some people are testing for red blood cell, RBC, SAM-E, and SOAR. I think that's all worthwhile. You get information from these things. I think that red blood cell folate is a valuable measure. It, it tells you about the, the folate stores, which are really important in both in methylation, but also really important in mental health in different directions. They now know that folates actually, in most of the body, tend to increase methyl levels, SAMI levels. However, in your DNA, in your chromatin, where you get genetic expression, it does the opposite in many areas, and folates strip methyl away from your DNA areas. That's the uh, reason why so many nutritionists get confused. So you could basically over-folate yourself, is that what you're saying? 
Is it where you're consuming too many folates either by diet or when you're taking these supplements like the, the B-complex or the, or the folates themselves? Yeah, you need to have the right amount of folate. You don't have too much or too little. And there's a lot of clear evidence now that there are new disorders and new problems throughout the world. People are enriching foods and cereals with folates. That's important for pregnant women, for example. If you're low in folate, they're more likely to have a child with spinal bifida or also with autism. I'm just wondering if you've looked at the difference between folic acid and the other folates? Absolutely. Okay. A lot of people are now saying, aha, I've got this MTHFR weakness, and therefore I have to use methylfolate, also known as Deplin. That is greatly overblown. For one thing, we have about 100,000 micrograms of folate in the body. The amount of folate you can add with Deplin, mm. the idea is to bypass this MTHFR part of the methylation cycle. It's a clever and intelligent thing that seems plausible. The problem is that this methylation cycle, it's like a racetrack with race cars zooming around the cycle over and over and over and over. In fact, there are more than a million methylation reactions every second in the body. The problem with methylfolate and Deplin is that it's what I call a suicidal nutrient. It's used once, and then it becomes garden variety normal folate and becomes part of the problem. It only acts once. It probably is somewhat better than the other forms of folate, which are folic acid or folinic acid. It's only slightly better, and the impact of it is relatively small because, again, if you look at the biochemistry, if you look at the cycle, when the deplin or the methylfolate helps convert the homocysteine back to methionine, it becomes THF, tetrahydrofolate, just like all the other folate in your body. It becomes garden variety, normal folate after its first use. It's not nearly as effective as people hope. And that's why a lot of people who are undermethylated, they might even be folate deficient, but a lot of people are getting worse if they're undermethylated and they take methylfolate or any of the folates. And the reason is epigenetics. If a person has a neurotransmitter problem, that's the exception to the rule. If you've got a problem with serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine neurotransmission, folates have a tremendously powerful effect on those, and they tend to drop and lower the neurotransmission of those. The simplest example is an undermethylated person with low serotonin activity. That's a lot of people. That's nearly half of all people with depression. So they're undermethylated, they have depression. If you give them folic acid or folinic acid or methylfolate, they're probably going to get worse. What will happen is that their methylation will improve because of the methylfolate or whatever. But their folates act as a serotonin reuptake promoter. And what these depressed people need are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They go exactly in the wrong direction. And that's why so many depressed people and people with anxiety who are undermethylated, who probably have an MTHFR problem, clinicians all over the world are now finding out, wow, a lot of these people are just getting worse and worse when I give them what ought to help them. So in this case, is the secret basically doing multiple interventions, like you were saying about the folate and the SAMEs and the inhibitor. So in that case, would you be putting two things in at the same time, basically, to counter both sides? Or how do you deal with these kind of complex problems? For the case of mental health, for the case of neurotransmitter problems, with every patient, a clinician, to try to understand which neurotransmitter system is misbehaving. 
and then in what direction. For example, if a person has low serotonin, depression or anxiety, or even schizophrenia, or even bipolar, then you have to do whatever you can to increase serotonin activity. Folates reduce serotonin activity. And that's why that harm overrides the benefit of improving methylation. Do you look at tests for neurotransmitters in addition to the ones you've spoken about, which are more general blood tests? We'd like to, but they don't reveal much. We've done a lot of that over the years, and we don't think this is very significant for a couple of reasons. One can do urine or blood studies or platelet kinetic studies of things like serotonin, dopamine, etc. The question is, is that related to what's in the brain? What's happening in the rest of the body may not at all relate to what's going on in the brain. For example, serotonin. All of the serotonin in your brain is made in your brain. Yes, there's a huge amount of serotonin made in the gut and in other parts of the body, but none of that serotonin makes it into your brain. And the mechanism and the synthesis of serotonin in the brain is quite a bit different from the way it's synthesized in the rest of the body. For a while, we were testing neurotransmitters in the periphery of the body, outside the brain. We found that it really wasn't useful and did not really give us a better idea of what a person's problems were in the brain and how to help them. Which is why you're sort of using proxies, plasma zinc, serum copper, whole blood histamine. Yes. It's really gotten quite clear. It really stems from the original work by Abram Hoffer and by Carl Pfeiffer. I think they were the two people who really got this going. Let me just give you one example. Abram Hoffer in the 50s, and that's you know 60 years ago, he was the first person to demonstrate that nutrients can have a dramatic impact on a person's mental health. He found that giving niacin to schizophrenics had a dramatic improvement on so many of them. He had a theory for that. He called it the adenochrome theory. Well, in the last five years, we now know why niacin works. And it's a different mechanism, and it's epigenetics. We now know that niacin, in the form of niacinamide, which is what happens to niacin in the body, it becomes niacinamide, it is what's known as a deacetylase inhibitor. What it does is it increases reuptake of serotonin and dopamine. A lot of schizophrenics are high dopamine people. There's a dopamine theory of schizophrenia for many years have believed that schizophrenia basically is a problem where you've got too much dopamine activity. Well, now we know that because of epigenetics, that niacin dramatically reduces dopamine activity. So for the first time, we understand why Hoffer's niacin treatments work. And that's wonderful to understand. So now we know because of this new epigenetic field, we understand what methyl does, what SAMI or methionine do. And because of epigenetics, they are reuptake inhibitors that increase serotonin activity, which is exactly what you want. The, the field of epigenetics is really guiding us to better therapies for people. The dominant effect in depression, for example, is reuptake. The same thing is true of anxiety and schizophrenia and bipolar. It's not the amount of neurotransmitter that's there. It's the activity, it's the reuptake, it's the speed which the neurotransmitter, once it gets ejected into the synapse, how fast it goes back. Right. And there's no way to like, directly account for that. Well, there is. There is now, and it really has to do with understanding the processes of epigenetics, and because they control this. The reuptake is controlled by the genetic expression of proteins that are called transport proteins. And these are the passageways 
for reuptake for serotonin or other neurotransmitters once they're in the synapse to zip back into that original cell. The number of these transporters in the membrane of your brain cells determines everything. We now know how to change that. What antidepressants do is they get in the brain quickly and they disable these transport proteins, these passageways, and they block the serotonin from going back into the original cells. They're inhibiting reuptake, and that's why they work for some people. We can do the same thing with nutrients by our knowledge of the epigenetics. And in that case, we have to avoid folate and we have to emphasize methyl and methionine. The thing that people talk about when they're comparing the genetics view we spoke about a bit before and looking at biochemical markers, there's some views that these markers can vary. It's biochemistry. It can vary by the hour. It can vary by the day, by the time of the day, by the week. So how stable are these markers that you're looking at in terms of in, in the bloodstream? Are they going to go up and down during the day or are they very stable and changing over months and based on treatment, they change very slowly? Well, this has been one of the most exciting parts of epigenetics. The markers themselves, these bookmarks along the DNA strand, they rarely change. It takes a rather dramatic event or environmental insult to change them. However, we now know that there's this process that's called histone modification. All of our DNA is wrapped around proteins that are called histones. We are able to change genetic expression by affecting what reacts to these histones. And if you methylate the histones, you tend to shut down genetic expression. And if you use folates or other chemicals, it essentially will increase genetic expression of a particular gene. So you can't change the basic bookmarks along the DNA, but there's two epigenetic processes. And the other one is the one that we already are able to, you might say, tinker with or alter. And so we're able to change gene expression by altering the chemicals on the histones. And it's called histone modification. What happens if you methylate a certain part of DNA or even have the histones methylated? Your DNA gets all jammed together. The way that proteins are made, the way that genetic expression occurs, you have to have your DNA uncoil and be laid bare so that large molecules like RNA polymerase and transcription factors they have to be able to get at and make a protein. In every cell in your body, you've got RNA polymerase, a chemical that's sort of swimming around trying to find a gene to produce. It has to have access to the DNA. Your DNA wraps around these millions of proteins, these histone proteins. Methylation tends to jam it all together and prevent gene expression, whereas other chemicals can cause it to uncoil and increase expression. So that's a complicated answer, but the answer is that you can't change the basic methylation of the DNA very easily. We don't know how to do that yet. Cancer researchers are finding ways in which you can maybe correct these things. I think that's the way eventually how cancer will be cured and autism and schizophrenia and other epigenetic disorders will be cured actually eventually. But right now, we already can do a lot with histone modification. Right. If I kind of resume quickly what I understood from that. You're saying that a lot of the environmental insults you were talking about earlier, which could be toxins, heavy metals, chemicals, have altered DNA by undermethylating them, by addressing methylation in the body that helps to counter some of these effects? They could be either undermethylated or overmethylated. If you've got abnormal methylation in the area surrounding a gene, you're going to have a problem with that particular chemical, which might be in your liver or in your kidneys or in your brain. 
So you need to have the proper methylation. And these bookmarks are all established in that first two or three months in the womb. One example of an epigenetic disorder, do you recall thalidomide? Maybe you're not old enough to remember that. Thalidomide was an anti-nausea pill given to pregnant women, and it caused terrible deformities. And what it was doing is it was altering these methyl marks and altering the chemicals produced in different parts of the body. And children were born with fingers and toes and arms, and it was really quite awful. And that's what happened is it messed up and altered the epigenetic laying down of these bookmarks, these methyl bookmarks. The question then, with respect to people who are adults and may have depression or anxiety or whatever, is what genes are misbehaving? There now are methods being developed where we can now identify genes that are abnormally methylated. We now have the ability to do that. It's really a piece of cake, really. It's very easy to do. Are those expensive tests? Not really. I'm just starting an experiment with some colleagues in Australia where we're going to do exactly that. We're about to do an experiment where we hope to demonstrate that schizophrenia is an epigenetic disorder. If you take the DNA, which is made up of literally billions of chemicals and hundreds of thousands of areas where you're looking for specific areas where methylation can either turn on or turn off a gene, we now have a way of cheaply and very accurately determining every methyl mark You just dip your DNA into a bisulfate solution. The only cytosine molecules left are the ones that were methylated. We now have the ability to do that. Are you able to do that down to the gene level? So we were talking about some SNPs earlier. Would you be able to see which SNPs are methylated and which ones aren't? Well, the SNPs themselves are the DNA mutations. The SNPs are DNA mutations. But the gene expression is related to that, of course, but it's also related to this histone modification. And it has to do with the bookmarks, the abnormal bookmarks. There are two different things that can go wrong. One has to do with the SNPs, which is genetic. The other has to do with the methylation marks that regulate gene expression. It has to do with gene regulation that's gone awry. And now we're able to do that too. We can identify both of them. For example, if you had a SNP, but it wasn't methylated, so it's not active, you'd be able to see that. When these people are looking at this complex system, they can stop looking at that SNP and saying that's the cause, because it may not be turned on, for example. Well, a SNP basically amounts to a weakness in a protein enzyme. It's a weakness. It doesn't mean that you shut it off. Like MTHFR is a gigantic molecule. It has more than 500 amino acids. Its molecular weight is 77,000. And what is a SNP? Of those 500 amino acids, one of them is the wrong amino acid. Just one out of the 500. And in most cases, a SNP doesn't affect the function of that enzyme. But there are a couple of places, especially in the MTHFR, the 677T and the 1298. Those are two locations where you can get a really significant weakness, not an elimination of the function, but a weakening of an enzyme. Those SNPs are there in the beginning. There are mutations that have occurred over centuries and over the millennium. We all have mutations. I mean, people are tall or short because of mutations, green or blue eyes because of mutations. That's why people are basically different. We now know that there are more than 10 million SNPs that have been identified in DNA. I think every human being has at least a couple thousand of these SNPs. We know that 52% of all people that live in Italy have MTHFR 677, and most of them don't need treatment. I think it's important to get a perspective of what SNPs are. We all have SNPs. 
And that's due to methylation. It is. I wanted to go back to the tests that you know, you've been running, which you are pretty cheap and you said are very good at diagnosing a lot of the different mental disorders. So you've got the whole blood histamine, the plasma zinc, the serum copper, urine, pyrolis, and ceruloplasmin. What I wanted to ask you, people talk about the stability of these kind of markers because they're biochemicals in your blood, right? Are those going to vary day by day and therefore be difficult to get an accurate reading on? For example, if you take cortisol, right, it's rising, and this is a very specific marker, of course, but it's rising and going down, so you have to take four readings per day to understand what's really happening. With these markers that you've taken, are these longer term, very stable markers, which don't vary a lot over time, so you're pretty sure of getting an accurate reading as to the state of them? Depends on which test, and we have to be very careful. For example, with whole blood histamine, we have to make sure that a person hasn't had antihistamine recently or any allergy treatments like antigens can affect the histamine reading. And that's why we're so excited about the SAMI SAH, the new test for methylation. With respect to zinc, we have to make sure we insist that before taking a blood draw that they abstain from any zinc supplementation for 24 hours. We've done enough thousands and thousands of these that we know how to do it. They're not all totally stable. The same is true of copper. We don't want anybody to be taking copper supplements just before a copper test. With the pyroles, that's probably one of the more unstable ones. Your pyrrole level in your blood and in your urine tends to vary throughout the day, and it varies with stress. When a person's under stress, their pyrrole levels tend to increase. So you get a snapshot in time. We know that normal pyrrole levels are between maybe 5 and 12, using the units that we use in the USA. If a person is between, say, 12 and 20, we regard that as high normal and possibly mild pyrroles. And people who are over 20, and we've had people as high as two or 300, if a person tests really high in pyrroles, we know they have pyrrole disorder. We had a uh, serial killer who was in prison in New York State. And we did a study where we were testing his pyrrole level, which was extremely high. He was 202 the first time we tested him. Working with a psychiatrist, we tried him day after day. And we found when he was under high stress, his level might be 200. But on our calm day, it might be 40. In other words, those levels do jump all over. In his case, he's always high. But that high level, that severity can really alter. And that's one reason why we need to know the symptoms and the traits, because the symptoms and traits, pyrrole disorder, are so sharp and clear. We can diagnose pyrrole disorder just by meeting a person and spending an hour with them. We can pretty much predict what the level is. Just all of them are morning people. They're not hungry for breakfast. They stay up late at night. They have a tendency to sunburn. They're usually famous for their temper. If they gain weight, they have an abnormal fat distribution. It's not completely simple, and that's why... At this time, I don't think people can really self-diagnose themselves. In my book, Nutrient Power, that covers this, I deliberately did not give a roadmap for people to read this and to start treating themselves. If you've got a serious problem, you really need to have a doctor who knows what they're doing to supervise this. You can make a person worse with nutrients. It seems like it's very complex. In addition to the markers which are going up and down, so could someone have a urine pyrolysis level which is normal? when in fact most of the time it would be in the high reference range and it would be something that you look at? The answer to your question is that there's a lot of false negatives with pyroles. We've had people who tested normal with pyroles and then three months later found out that they actually did have really high pyrrole levels. Another problem with the pyrrole sample is that if the urine sample gets overheated 
or if it gets too much exposure to light, it'll just decompose the pyrroles. That's one of the issues. That's an interesting point, actually. I've come across this before. In terms of lab handling, some tests are more sensitive than others. So it sounds like urine pyrolysis is very sensitive to lab handling, and there could be errors through the lab. Yeah, the challenge with a lot of sampling and the greatest errors we have in these markers and these studies are not what happens in the lab, but the ability to get a good sample to the lab, get the sample in good condition to the laboratory. Because uh, it's a centralized lab, specialist lab? There are labs in Europe that do pyrrole levels and allow the samples to be sent at room temperature over days to the lab. That's a terrible idea. You're going to get a lot of decomposition of the pyrrole molecule. They really need to be either hard frozen and sent on dry ice and protected against light or else shipped on an ice pack in 24 hours. I mean, you have to be really careful about how that's done, and a lot of labs are doing it wrong. I've seen that problem with other markers as well. If you look at, for instance, the plasma zinc and the serum copper, where in that case, I understand that you're addressing those imbalances through supplementing zinc and copper. Is it very difficult to not overshoot? Are the zinc and copper markers, are they more stable? Like they're not moving up and down every day, but they are moving if you supplement. So how do you judge how much you provide it in terms of an input of zinc or copper versus the more natural methods like food. So, for example, if you took some liver, which has, you know, naturally has zinc and copper. Actually, copper is one of the more reliable lab tests. It almost never is wrong. The copper is not going to deteriorate. It can't decompose. I mean, the copper is a metal. It's not going to go anywhere. So the concentration of copper is in a lab test you can really rely on, assuming you've got a, a good lab. And that's something that we're very confident of. Now, what is a normal healthy level? Well, healthy, generally, an ideal level would be between, say, 80 and 100 micrograms per deciliter. But if you've got a woman with anxiety and depression and she's testing at 180, that means she has low dopamine and elevated norepinephrine. And the treatment for this has got to be done very slowly and gradually. And the treatment really involves giving things like zinc and B6, because zinc and will cause the excess copper to leave. And the way it does that is it stimulates the genetic expression of a protein called metallothionine. And I don't want to get into the details of that, but you have to do it slowly and carefully because if you jump in and give a full dose of, say, zinc to a high copper person, it'll dump too much copper in the bloodstream and they'll have the worst day of their life. So you have to do it carefully. When you're trying to bring a nutrient level down, you usually have to do it gradually and gradually increase the doses and maybe for maybe two or three weeks to avoid temporary side effects. The typical healthy zinc level, I think, is between perhaps 100 and 120 micrograms per deciliter. You use different labs. We almost never see people who are high in zinc. Zinc problems are virtually always involving deficiencies. We find in the patients we've had with mental problems that 90% of them are either low normal or totally deficient in zinc. And that's probably the number one most common chemical imbalance in mental disorders. It has a lot to do with oxidative protection. Your zinc is related to one of the major protectors in the body against oxidative stress, and that is this metallothionine protein that is stimulated. The production of it depends on zinc levels. And that's how copper is regulated in the body. Copper is really important with mental functioning. Excessive levels, for example, cause, we think, and we published a paper on this, of postpartum depression. Women who develop 
surprising depression or even psychosis after having a couple of babies. And the reason is during the nine months of our pregnancy, a woman's copper level more than doubles. The fetus needs that. After the baby is born, within 24 hours, that copper level is supposed to go back down to normal. A lot of people do not have the ability to get rid of excess copper. People who have that disorder, even whether they're males or females, that's something that's so easily fixed. Within 60 days, we can do a nutrient therapy that will normalize their blood levels of copper and in many cases have dramatic improvement in functioning. Copper and zinc are markers that are, I would say, especially reliable. As long as you're careful not to have anybody taking zinc or copper supplements within 24 hours of the blood draw. The other markers, you have to be more careful with a lot of the others. So have you had people that have entered your practice, I'm just asking if it's ever come up, when they've been supplementing with, say, zinc or, say, copper or maybe something else, and they've managed to cause a mental disorder clinically and end up in your practice because of that, just out of interest? Yes, that has happened for sure. A lot of people we see are already on supplements. Before you do the blood work, you don't want them to stop all of the supplements because that would put them into a transition that might be transitioning over months. And so what we have to do is find out exactly what they're taking and just have them stop for about 24 hours before we do their blood work. Once you put them on treatment, how often or frequently do you test to make sure that things are okay or what are you looking for? A typical patient would come in, we would spend probably two hours with them. Most of that's spent on getting their symptoms or traits or medical history. You learn a lot from any medications they've taken to which ones have helped them, which ones have harmed them, and getting all of that information and then the blood work. With all of that, we then can identify, in most cases, the chemical imbalances that are at the root of their problem, hopefully, and then we can start them immediately on a treatment program a treatment program of nutrients aimed at normalizing these blood and brain levels. Typically, I always like to see patients between four and six months after that visit. It's quite a slow readjustment process. Yeah. People are different with respect to how well they absorb things. We might give a patient 50 milligrams of zinc, but is that actually the right level for them? So if you can do a second test after they've done that for several months, find out what their zinc level is, and then you can fine-tune the dosage and make it perfect. And once you've done that in an adult, you really don't need to do that maybe once every couple of years. Most of our patients we would want to see within six months after the first visit and after they've been taking the treatment to look at their chemistry again. And then we would typically see them once a year for a checkup. It's not a lot of doctoring. That's good. And you just get the test then and make sure everything's up. When you were talking about the tests, are you using reference ranges that labs typically use or do you have your own? Because you mentioned, I think it was zinc. It was 100 to 120. Are you using narrower ranges or, or ranges that you've developed yourself over time that you find are better optimum avoid these kind of mental disorders? That's a very good question. The ranges that you see from laboratories, whether it's Quest or LabCorp or Sonic or something like that, these are basically what they call two sigma ranges. They're ranges in which roughly 95% of the population fits between these two levels. And they're extraordinarily broad. But the functional ranges for mental health are much narrower. For example, whole blood histamine, the ranges typically are between, say, 25 and 150. However, Carl Pfeiffer found years ago, for mental health, the range should be between 40 and 70. And people who are below 40 are basically overmethylated. And people who are over 70 are undermethylated. 
these broad ranges that you see on the lab reports, sometimes you have to ignore those ranges and focus on the narrow ranges that are related to mental functioning, not just general physical health. Thank you very much for this. This is very clear and I'm sure it'll be very helpful for people. In your opinion, would it be helpful for someone who's suffering any kind of mental disorder, or say they're going to psychotherapy because they're having some problems, be helpful to get these blood tests in case anything comes up, just these five very basic tests? Well, there's probably a few more than five, but I think it would be very helpful to do that. And we have a few labs that are quite good at doing this. We've got one in the USA called Direct Healthcare Access that I asked to put together a protocol of these tests. It's more than five tests, but it gives all the information that we need to get at least a first look at a person's mental functioning. Another thing we're doing is we need to have doctors that can evaluate these tests, doctors who know their patient and can do the tests and understand what it means and then develop the proper treatment. Our main activity now has been to train doctors. We trained, I think, 34 practitioners in Ireland last year. We did a 66 doctors in Australia this year. I have a team that is doing international physician training, and our goal is to have a 1,000 doctors scattered around the world who are really good at doing this, and I think that's really important. Unfortunately, it's complicated enough that it's not something that the average person can do themselves. Is someone able to do that panel you just spoke of to see if they have a problem? Yes, a lot of people do that. Some of them do it to determine if they're good candidates to see a doctor and go through the travel of seeing a doctor. A lot of people are doing that very panel. In fact, I think they do that at that specialty lab near Chicago. I think they do this for people throughout the world. That would be interesting if you could give me the reference for that because people might like to just run that. Actually, if you have my book and you look in the back of the book, there's a resources section, and that lab is listed first with their contact information. Oh, great. You just ask for your panel. Yeah, they do my panel. I'm not associated with them. They're separate from me, but I have at times tested the proficiency of the lab, and I think they're very good. And as you said, that's relatively cheap? I think you said under $500? We're going to be training 40 doctors in the Chicago area in October, and we're having about 40 patients that will be part of the training where we take real live patients who come in and we go through the whole process to help train the doctors. We're going to use that panel on them. And I think the cost is uh, between 350 and 400 US dollars. Wow, that's great. Not bad at all, right? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Say something came up in one of these tests. You were talking about many doctors you've trained on your website or somewhere is there a list of individuals they could go to get this type of biochemical treatment or is it a bit broader? Are there other organizations? Where could they get more information about doctors that could help them with these particular problems? Well, as we train doctors, last week we just sent out a questionnaire to doctors that we have trained that have been to our training programs to find out which of them are actually doing these therapies and are confident in them and would welcome new patients and we're going to put that on our website right now there's a very small list of doctors that we have on our website but we hope to have maybe a hundred or so throughout the world that'll be on that website maybe a month or two from now when we get all the responses back. And as we keep going, like I said, our goal is to train a 1,000 doctors in the next five years throughout the world. And we're interested always in going to countries that are interested. If there's a group within a country that would like to have these kind of therapies brought to their country, we're very open to working with people. My organization is a public charity. We're not interested in making money, but we are interested in getting these effective therapies available to people throughout the world. That's great, William. I think it's, it's really amazing what you're doing. I want to look a little bit towards the future use of this you know, over the next 10 years. 
Can you see these kind of natural biochemical therapies replacing some of the drugs that are used with mental disorders today? How do you see this evolving over the next 10 years, for example, or you would hope to see it evolve? What I think is happening is I think we're just in the beginning stages of a new era in mental health. For about 100 years, we had the Freudian era, which lasted up until 1965, where the thought was if a person had depression or a mental problem was because of their life experiences. Then in 1965, which was the biochemical revolution in psychiatry, they began to realize that the problem really was neurotransmitters and brain chemistry and malfunctions chemical imbalances in the brain, the only way at that time they knew how to correct and help these people was with drugs. So we've been in a, you might say, the pharmaceutical era that started in 1965, and I believe it's about to end. And the reason is, as brain science advances, we are learning more and more how we can correct these problems without drugs. The, The basic fundamental problem with drugs is that they're foreign molecules. They're powerful foreign molecules. And when a foreign molecule that's powerful enters the brain, you do not create normalcy. You usually have side effects or maybe a change in personality or it could be weight gain. or It's not going to provide normalcy. And as brain science advances, and it's already beginning to happen, we're getting to the point where we're going to be able to normalize the brain without drugs because of scientific knowledge that's coming. The interesting thing is a lot of this knowledge and a lot of this great scientific work is being done by drug companies. Basically, uh, they're going to be obsoleting themselves. They already are being frustrated at times by doing research and finding that natural substances are working better than drugs for some of these conditions. The only problem is that the drug companies have the wrong goal, and that's to make the next billion-dollar drug. And so when they find natural ways to correct the problem or correct a brain chemistry problem, they don't pursue it. It's not because it's not in the interest of their stockholders. Anyway, I think the answer is yes, we're just beginning a new era in mental health. It's going to be a tendency toward normalizing the brain and being able to accomplish that without drug medications. In terms of your own recommendation, your top recommendation to someone who's trying to make better decisions about their body's health, and performance with data, what would be your top recommendation that they should do, whatever it should be? Well, of course, there's the things that we already know. Uh, Everybody needs to have a good diet. We need to have nutrient-dense foods. However, the best diet for one person is not the best for the other. For example, if you're under-methylated, you would thrive on a protein-based diet. And if you're over-methylated, the best diet would be a vegetarian diet rich and and green leafy vegetables. So there's a biochemical individuality. Each one of us is biochemically individual. It would be nice if people could get to know who they were biochemically. Some people do this by trial and error, by finding out how they feel on different kinds of diets. But of course, junk food diets are a problem. People need to have the right amount of the omega-3 of fatty acids, which is a major problem in the U.S. and everywhere where diets are, you might say, junk food type diets, which are throughout the USA. And then the second thing, of course, is exercise. One of the major things that people don't, most people don't realize is the importance of antioxidants. To have diet and to have maybe supplements that provide antioxidant protection. A very high percentage of people with depression and anxiety and behavior problems and these imbalances have high elevated levels of oxidative stress. That can be caused by outside influences like toxic metals or immune problems. But 
often it has to do with a genetic weakness for some people in protecting against oxidative stress. They may not have enough glutathione or selenium or zinc or there's a long list of protective agents in the body that are supposed to protect us. And a lot of people have insufficient levels of those. So I would think that it would be really important for people just fortify themselves with things like vitamin C and vitamin E and selenium and zinc. There's a long list of really effective antioxidants. I think almost everyone would benefit from that. I noticed in your book, by the way, that when it came to heavy metals testing, like urine and blood, you felt that the results from those tests were difficult to analyze. Is that still your view? I first got interested in the very beginning when I found that criminals had very abnormal metal levels. I found I did a lot of testing of blood, urine, and hair testing. And actually, with toxic metals, very often hair testing is, if done properly by a good lab, can be really revealing. It's probably a, a great way to find if a person has too much mercury or lead or cadmium or one of these nasty metals. One problem, however, is that the labs starting about 15 years ago, started doing something I really hated. They would list the correct parts per million level of the lead and the mercury and all, but they changed the charts and they tend to exaggerate the toxic metals. In other words, I know that the average human being has in America has about 1.5 parts per million lead in their hair. Almost all the labs now make it look like 1.5 milligrams is an overload and that you're being poisoned. It's shown in the red, for example, something, something like Doctor's Data. They have the red. Exactly. And Doctor's Data, by the way, used to use my reference normals. I think I have the world's best reference normals for metals and hair. And they were using it for many years. But then they changed the toxic levels, the charts. And I begged them not to do that and asked them why. And they said they had to do it for competition reasons and also because of dentistry. At that time, a lot of their hair analysis was done by dentists who were looking for mercury. They said that the dentists like to see high levels of mercury. So they made the charts look like, like they had high levels so they could persuade their patients to have their fillings removed. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Yeah, Very unfortunate. We still sometimes will use a hair analysis. I've done a lot of forensics. I've done 28 forensic studies of famous criminals. And hair analysis is very revealing for evaluating these severe behavior disorders. I can only use the actual levels, the parts per million levels. I just have to disregard the chart because the charts are crazy. They tend to make it look like everybody has toxic metal overload. So in general, the actual levels are okay, but you'd say like if it's in the red or in the yellow, it may be okay. It may be. We now have done this enough times. I've done maybe 100,000 of these, and I, I know what normal and healthy is. Everybody has some of these toxics in their body. We all have toxic metals in our body. For example, mercury, just from breathing. In America, you get one microgram of mercury just from breathing. You get typically about 20 micrograms of mercury from a typical diet. And if you have tuna fish for lunch, uh, you might have 50 micrograms of mercury. Your body has to deal with toxic metals every day. Every brain cell in your body has toxics come in and leave every day. Your brain has toxics that enter the brain and depart the brain every day. And you've got protectors in the brain, things like glutathione and metallothionine that are there to protect you. And if any of this gets into the brain, it immediately reacts with it and makes it safe. But some people don't have that antioxidant protection. And we think that has a lot to do with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Uh, older people need to protect their brains with antioxidant supplements. 
It's, it's pretty amazing all the areas you've worked in over the years. It's pretty much every aspect of the brain. Who besides yourself would you recommend to talk about these types of brain biomarkers and biometrics? Someone who knows the brain, perhaps in different areas, some people who you've read their work and, and you find it good and you'd recommend it or other things like that? Well, there are a lot of people that do a very nice job of nutritional biochemistry, you might say, and there are some people that I, I totally respect. Many of them are not into the new knowledge. They don't track the brain science up to date, especially the new impact of epigenetics, which tells us so much more about nutritional therapies, especially related to brain disorders and mental disorders. We put a list of them on our website. The next book I write, I'll, I hope they have a very long list of doctors who I think are very capable of doing this. But there aren't too many people out there who are doing our testing and our treatment methods. That's why we're focusing attention now on training doctors to do this. And we've now trained about 200 doctors around the world that are doing this. And I get such enthusiastic reactions when I talk to them about how they're so excited about how they can now help patients they couldn't help before and do it without drugs. We're not opposed to drugs. I want to make that point. Drugs, antidepressants, antipsychotics have helped millions of people. But I think that in most cases, the improvements are partial in nature, and the side effects very often are intolerable or very unpleasant. And I think we need to move toward a better world, a better time when we can at least reduce the amount of the drugs. In schizophrenics, most of them are on very heavy antipsychotic medication. Right now, our knowledge level is not to the point where we can offer the likelihood through nutrient therapy of eliminating their medication. So what we do is we keep people on their medication, do our nutrient therapy together, do both at the same time. After about three or four months after we've completed our part of it, we then test lower and lower levels of the medication. For depression, for anxiety, for behavior disorders, about 80% of the people tell us that they're at their best with zero medication. 20% say they lose something if they get rid of the last piece of the medication. And we say, so be it. We're not opposed to medication. We just want people to be functioning at their highest level. In schizophrenia, it's unusual. We can usually have schizophrenics become far more functional. And many of them live a, a normal life, can return to a normal life and be self-dependent. They usually need some medication support in the case of schizophrenia because our knowledge level is not high enough yet to eliminate the medication. This is great. Great. Thanks for those details. Last question. Just love to know what data metrics do you track for your own body on a routine basis? Is there anything you keep an eye on for yourself? Well, about 35 years ago, I brought a group of criminals fresh out of the prison to see Carl Pfeiffer. And these were all sociopaths who had done terrible things. And when I was there, he said, I couldn't ask anybody to go through this testing unless I was willing to do it myself. So he ran me through his complete array of biochemical tests. And he found out that I had two rather significant chemical imbalances. He found out that I was zinc deficient. Since I met Pfeiffer, I am now taking 100 milligrams of zinc a day. And I do blood testing, and it's just barely enough to keep my blood level normal. Wow. So how often do you test for that? Well, now that I'm adult, I did it last year and maybe five years before that. Every once in a while, I'll check on it to make sure that I'm okay and it's the right level. Some people don't need any zinc. A lot of people get enough zinc from their diet. In my case, I have a genetic weakness with respect to zinc. Another thing he found was that I, I was a very high histamine, undermethylated person. For example, I'm sure I'm MTHFR, probably 677. I'm not going to bother to test it because I expect it. And it doesn't matter anyway whether I am or not. I'm undermethylated. The way I corrected that 
I used to be with methionine, but now I take 400 milligrams of SAMI a day. And for me, that works really well. And what it does for me, it does two things. I used to have migraine headaches, and they've disappeared ever since I fixed the methylation. And I also had really severe seasonal allergies, ragweed, grasses, inhaled allergies. That has also disappeared as soon as I went on Pfeiffer's program. That is very interesting. I had exactly the same issue before I went on to methylation, taking SAMI and headaches, and my uh, seasonal allergies had gone, which I'd never had my allergies before the age of, I can't, I can't remember if it was 30 or anything. Um, I also had a tendency for low serotonin depression, but it's never happened, I think, because perhaps because of the treatment methylation. Yeah. What do you test personally on that level for your undermethylation? Do you test every month or once every six months or once every year for yourself? It's not necessary. Once you've determined your methylation tendency, which you were born with, genetic, you have that the rest of your life. It's not going to change. I've never retested my histamine after the first couple of times. And with patients, once you've done the histamine tests a couple of times to verify that, in fact, you know what their methylation tendency is, you don't ever need to test it again because it's something that's part of their life the rest of their lives. That's great. Well, it sounds like you have everything under control for your own body without doing much testing apart from the zinc just every now and again. Yeah, so far, so good. I don't take any drugs. I haven't had anything that I needed to go and see a doctor for the last 25 years. But I think also that the great Carl Pfeiffer, when he studied my biochemistry, he gave me a treatment program to normalize my chemistry. I'm not sure, but I'm not going to stop taking it. I think it's probably helped me a lot. Yeah, that's great to hear. Well, William, thank you so much for the interview today. It's been absolutely amazing. We've covered lots of topics I expected to and many topics that I didn't know about, and I'm really glad we had to cover too. Okay, Damien, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The Quantified Body. <laughs>